Amen. How's everybody doing? Fantastic. I love to hear that. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell on staff here. Love being on staff here. Love getting to work with all of you, college students. Let's go. Cedar Rapids, God's country. If you didn't know that, Cedar Rapids is God's country. So, you guys have a good Thanksgiving break? Yeah, some of you. Anybody in here work retail on Black Friday? Ooh, I just want to let you know, I'm so sorry. I've done that before. I worked at Shields several years ago, and it made me it made me hate um, it made me hate the Thanksgiving season. Honestly, I wasn't super thankful because I knew I was working Black Friday. But th- there's this interesting thing about Thanksgiving break. It's actually a little bit of a teaser for Christmas break. You guys know what I'm talking about when it's like you have a few days off. And then you know Christmas break is coming, which is an extended break, but smack dab right in between. You have this thing that at least Iowa State would call dead week, which is right before finals week. And it was supposed to be like, hey, chill out a little bit before finals week comes. And it was actually more like, hey, we're going to make you feel like you're dead before you have finals week. And then finals come, you get buried, and then it's like, oh, finally, Christmas break is here. But... Let's, let's rewind a little bit. I asked the question, how was your Thanksgiving break? And some of you might say, like, good. But the question is, like, why was it good? So now let me ask you this. How was your faith over Thanksgiving break? Did you grow? Was it engaging? Was it captivating? Were you in your Bible? Or was it maybe actually quite the opposite? You lose Thursday night salt company, you lose maybe your close community here, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't know that I read my Bible over Thanksgiving break. Oh, I went home and I went back into the same sin patterns that I did a year ago. The reality is for most of us, breaks are typically not filled with growth. I've been doing this for two years, and as I look forward to Christmas break, Here's the deal. The majority of you in this room will struggle. And so while we're excited to say, oh my gosh, I'm excited for a break from classes or, you know, less on my plate, if you're anything like me, the more freedom you have, you actually don't thrive in. (laughs) You're left to, yes, have more time, but also end up more distracted. And the things that were important to you three weeks ago have now taken a backseat to Netflix binging and eating more food than you could ever imagine. If you're like me, I'm not saying that's you. Um, But the reality is, Christmas break is hard. And so the question that I want to ask you is, how do you make your faith last? How do you make your faith last? And as you head into Christmas break, how do you not become like the majority of people that I have interacted with over the last two years? But the question is actually much, much deeper than how does your faith last over Christmas break? Because just like Thanksgiving break is a teaser for Christmas break, Christmas break in many ways is a teaser for adulthood. And here's what I mean when I say that. There's less structure, there's less events put on for you to engage you and pull you in, and it requires more initiative and more discipline. Take Salt Company off the plate for over a month, take connection group maybe off the plate for over a month, and you're like, oh, this is something I actually have to work for. That is the majority of adulthood, right? People aren't just like knocking on your door waiting to hang out. They have families and children 
and are working long work hours, and it's going to require you to step in, have discipline, and take initiative. And so the question I'm asking you is not just how do you make your faith last over Christmas break, but how do you make your faith last for a lifetime? And there's this pretty interesting statistic. I want to put it on display for us. I'm going to have everybody stand up for us right now. Everybody stand up. If you're in this room, stand up, okay? All right. Now, if you are not in the first three rows on this side, sit down. The first three rows. Okay. Okay. Statistically speaking, you guys can turn around if you want, if that's helpful for you. Look around. If you are sitting down, you represent the majority of the people in this room, okay? Statistically speaking, 70% of you will leave the church by the time you're 30 years old. That's an issue. And if you're sitting there thinking, that won't be me, pride can come before the fall. All right, you guys can sit down. 70%, statistically speaking, 70% of people your age that say, I have faith, will leave the church by the time they're 30. So how are you not going to become a part of the 70%? How's your faith going to last? That's where we're going. Open up to Luke 6. Uh, We're closing out our parable series. Uh, Jesus has a good one for us tonight. It's definitely not going to be me. Uh, God's word is true, and it's good. It's sweet to the taste. And I just want to give you guys a little bit of background where we're at, Luke 6. Jesus has called his disciples to himself, the 12. And I'm just going to read verses 17 through 19. should be up on the screen here. It says, and he, Jesus, after he calls his disciples, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. This is incredible. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. He healed them all. So just imagine, like, thousands of people are pressing in on Jesus. They're sick, they're possessed, and all they want to do is just touch Jesus, and he heals them all. That's incredible. To be in that position, you would be like, oh, surely this is the Son of God, like, without a doubt. But then something interesting happens. Jesus doesn't just look out and address the thousands in the very next verse, if you have a Bible with you. Verse 20, it says, And he, Jesus, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and he goes on to preach this sermon. And so just like Jesus in this sermon is saying, I know there's crowds. I'm going to talk to you, disciples. I'm going to talk to you who call yourselves followers of Jesus. That's what I'm here to do tonight. And so if you do not call yourself a Christ follower, if you're a skeptic, maybe you're on the outside questioning, is this, is this Jesus thing real? I want you to know that this message is not primarily for you, though I would say, I think Jesus has something, something to teach you and talk to you about too, even as I do the same thing. I turn my attention off of a crowd and I say, okay, if you call yourself a Christian, tonight this message is for you. We tracking? Cool. Uh, So Jesus proceeds to teach his disciples about the kingdom of God. He touches on things like having humility, loving people, extending mercy, giving generously, forgiving others, and teaching against hypocrisy. 
And for all the skeptics and non-believers in the room, you're like, finally, someone's talking to those dang Christians about hypocrisy. We got a problem, you guys, and we're going to talk about it. So he closes his sermon with a parable. We're just going to read it together, starting in verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will tell you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So after all of this teaching, Jesus closes with a parable. And he says, there's two, type of, two types of people that call themselves Christians, okay? There's people who actually hear what Jesus says and they do it. Or there's people who hear what Jesus says and they don't do it. And he says, here's what it's like. Two men, both men, both building a house, in this story, it's actually likely these houses were probably built right next to each other, right? The same flood is coming and breaking against both of them, and they have drastically different outcomes. So we're going to look at three things we can learn from this teaching on what it means to have lasting faith, okay? If you're a note taker, I would encourage you, track along with me. We're going to talk through three things. First, being a Christian is not merely saying you're a Christian or even doing Christian things, okay? Being, your, being a Christian is not saying you're a Christian or even doing Christian things. We look at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? These people knew what to say. They knew to call Jesus Lord, and not just once, this, this double Lord, Lord, it actually shows an extra position of honor. And they're calling Jesus Lord, Lord. And the word actually means this, owner, master, one who can exercise full rights. And so Jesus is saying, wait a second, you're calling me the right thing, but then if I'm your master... Why are you not doing what I tell you to do? That doesn't sound like Lord to me. And when you look at this parable, you guys, the, the people that Jesus is teaching against, they also have a house, don't they? On the surface, they can even appear to be doing Christian activity. These are people who can be going to church on Sunday, going to Salt on Thursday, going to Connection Group in the middle of the week, calling themselves Christians. But Jesus sees right through a mere profession of faith, something that we say with our lips. He sees beyond our Christian performance. He actually is trying to see below the surface. So here's a question for you as you think about this. Below the surface... Who or what is Lord of your life? Who or what is master? 
It's not what you say you believe. It's not what your Instagram bio says you believe. But as you actually take a hard look at your life, Sunday through Saturday, what does your life say is Lord? Does your spiritual life impact your daily living? Jesus is challenging us here. And again, if you're anything like me, especially who I was as a college student, you're probably willing to say, I'm willing to call Jesus Lord in the sense that it means he gets to save me from my sin. We all love Jesus as Savior. But I love Jesus as Lord so long as he doesn't tell me to not party, to not have sex, as long as he doesn't impede upon my finances, keep my money to myself, as long as he doesn't take my future plans of living close to family and having my dream job, as long as I can stay in this ungodly relationship or this toxic friendship, as long as I can have my hobbies and you don't impede upon those, okay, then I'll follow you, Jesus. And he's not interested in that. If you actually understand who Jesus is as Lord, you understand he doesn't fit inside your clean box that you try and put him in. That is not what a Lord is made for. Which leads us to our next point, number two. A Christian's life is marked by obedience to Jesus. It's marked by obedience to Jesus. And we can't reduce obedience, you guys. I think, I think we've done this thing where it's like, oh, I'm obedient to Jesus because look how moral I am. Or even as I alluded to, this, this Christian activity, like, Surely I'm obedient to Jesus. I go to Salt on Thursday. I go to church on Sunday. I go to Connection Group on Tuesday. Surely I'm obedient. But how is obedience actually unpacked here? We see in verse 47, Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. That is what obedience is. Step one, come to me. How often are you not just calling Jesus Lord, but going to your master for direction? When you need to make a decision on anything in life, are you calling Jesus Lord or are you actually going to your master and looking for direction? Because there is this crazy reality in our hands, maybe on your smartphone, we possess this thing called the Bible, <laughs> The word of God that has been preserved for thousands of years and translated into our language so that we can hear directly from God himself. Look no further for direction. The God of the universe is not far off and distant. He is near to you and in fact he's inviting you to hear from him through the Bible. And beyond that, you guys, we don't serve a mysterious God who is far off and we're like, oh, I wonder what he's like as we begin to celebrate Christmas, we celebrate this idea that God himself in the person and work of Christ came down to earth. Okay, Jesus says this in John 14, 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him because you have seen him. Jesus is saying, if you want to know the character of God, if you want to know what God is like, look no further. We have the personal account of Jesus Christ in our Bibles. And so this thing of how do we hear from our master? How do we know what he wants us to do? 
read your Bible, examine the life of Jesus. How's that going for you? <laughs> Again, if you're anything like me, dicey. Dicey at best, right? And as I've looked into this next section, here's my words. Um, the word hears um, is akuo, which is not simply letting, letting sound enter into your ear and pass through. It's implying listening, understanding, comprehension. You guys know the difference between hearing and listening, don't you? You ever been there when like someone's talking to you and then they get done talking and you're like, I'm sorry, say that again. You ever done that? Anybody else? I know one guy in this room that has, his name is Nils. Where are you at? Um, Leads worship for us. I was playing Yahtzee with him last week. Yeah, I know I'm old. Freaking get over it. I'm almost 30. We were playing Yahtzee and I'm sitting there talking to Nils about fantasy football or something and you know, this whole time I'm talking to him, he's too busy adding up his score. And Yahtzee, he doesn't even understand I'm talking to him. And then Sabrina has to nudge him, and she's like, hey, he's talking to you. And he, oh, what? Sorry. <laughs> right? I've heard it happens to Nils more than most people, but we've all been there. And so the question is, are you not just hearing his word, but are you, are you listening? Okay? And maybe you aren't hearing God's word because, number one, you're not coming to him. That's tough. But maybe you're not hearing God's word because you're not listening. You're too distracted. Your eyes are on a Yahtzee score. Maybe not a Yahtzee score. Your eyes are on something else. Even when you're reading your Bible, your mind isn't engaged. And so I want to give you guys a really practical tool and tip to say, this is going to help you listen not just hear, but listen to God when you read your Bible. Let me put it up on the screen. It's an acronym. COMA, okay? So, COMA, pretty easy to remember. Trust me, I got an, another acronym coming for you. It's even better, okay? We're going to look at it together. Context. As you open your Bible, this is going to be helpful for you to have a pen and a paper when you're reading your Bible. Context. Who is writing? Who is the audience? Believe it or not, the Bible was not written primarily to you. In the year 2021 in America, you were not the original audience in mind. Surprise. What came before this passage? I kind of did that with you tonight, looking at Luke 6. What's happening here? Who is Jesus talking to? Okay, what did this mean to the original audience? That's the hard work of context. Next, observation. What are you seeing? What's the flow of the passage? What words don't you understand? What questions arise? These are just questions for you to ask as you're looking at it. So if you were looking at Luke 6 tonight, why does it say Lord twice? That's a question that you would ask that would actually take you to a deeper understanding of what's going on here. Meaning, what is the main point and how does this relate to Jesus? That's a good question to ask anytime you read the Bible, whether you are in Leviticus or Revelation. What does this mean and how does it point to Jesus? And last, application. How does this passage challenge your understanding, attitude, or actions? It's going to take us to our next point, right? We come to Jesus, we hear his word, and we do his word. Romans 12.2, anybody know that? Have it memorized? Okay. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. Wait, did you say informed? No. Transformed. It doesn't say, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be informed. It says, be transformed. That's why we read our Bibles. 
We don't just read our Bibles to learn more information. We read our Bibles to actually see God change us. And so as you look at Luke 6, and you look at these commands like, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive others, extend mercy, stop being judgmental and hypocritical. It'd be kind of silly to sit back and be like, oh, that's interesting. God wants us to forgive other people. Hmm, noted. No, he wants you to to become a forgiving person. It's not just for you to say, oh, that's interesting. That's a good command. Next, move on. To read and not apply scripture is like to chew and not swallow. Seriously. Like, imagine, imagine you're actually trying to like lift weights. Some of you really have to imagine. I do too, right? Imagine you're actually like trying to become an athlete or like really take care of your body and you're trying to do all this stuff. All the meanwhile, here's what you're doing. You're coming home and you're, you're chewing your food, and then you're spitting it out in the garbage. You are getting no nutrition from that. And guess what's going to happen? You will starve. You will certainly not grow. And the problem is many of us have been doing that when it comes to our Bible. We have been chewing on it. We've been thinking about it, maybe even saying, oh, that's a really good teaching. But it's not actually changing us. We're not actually consuming it to the point that it leads to living for Jesus. And so here's our next acronym. Told you this one's better. It is CRAM. That's funny, okay? It's good, though. CRAM, character of God. When we read the Bible, what does this passage teach me about who God is? That's where we start, okay? What, who does this show God to be in the passage? Next is responsibility. So as I look at the text, it's like, what does God require or expect from me? What is like a clear command in the passage that it's asking me to step into? Or is there something modeled that reflects what God has prescribed elsewhere in the Bible? Sometimes you'll see this as you read in Genesis. There's not a lot of clear commands, but you read a lot of stories. And you're like, oh my gosh, Abraham went and sacrificed Isaac on the mountain. So does that mean I need to go have a firstborn son and take him up a mountain and kill him? No, okay? Not descriptive. Not prescriptive, it's descriptive, right? It's this idea of, hey, God told Abraham to do something and Abraham did it. And so, this idea of, hey, if God is actually challenging you, challenging you to give up something that is near and dear to you, you can be like Abraham. You can step in faith and trust God, okay? Um, The next, attitudes and actions. I think this is important to touch on. What we're doing is connecting the dots between character of God and responsibility. And we're, we're asking, what does this reveal about my attitudes and actions? Here's the thing. I think a lot of us, anybody type A in here, like operate on checklists, love to have like, just give me the one thing to do, dang it, I'll do it. Anybody like that? Just me? Okay, a few of you. Um, The Bible can be really frustrating sometimes because you'll read a passage and you're like, oh, no clear command. Yes, I just move on, right? It's like, no, he doesn't want to just change what you do. He wants to change how you think. And so it's important to say this is attitude and actions because sometimes you'll interact with the text and there's not a clear command, but God wants to change the way you think. He wants to change your motivations. He wants to change what you meditate on. He wants to change your heartbeat, not just your overflow, 
Because guess what? You actually need the heartbeat to have an overflow. You need to change your attitudes and your actions. Last meditation. It's just asking this question, how does Jesus save us from law-breaking by his doing and dying for us? This is the gospel application, okay? How does this remind me of Jesus? How does this make Jesus beautiful in my life? And how can I meditate on that during the day? Really simple. What I would do is just find something in the text that you can hold on to. And if that's memorizing a verse, great. If that's coming up with a word, that you can repeat to yourself. So like you're reading John 15, and Jesus is saying, as you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit, right? I'm the vine, you are the branches. And so maybe my meditation for that day is abide. Abide. And as I'm going throughout my day, I tell myself, abide. Jordan, you need to abide. Apart from God, you can do nothing, okay? It's finding a quick little nugget to hold on to that can actually change your attitude and your actions throughout the day. Cram. Cram it, right? That's funny. You guys can laugh. Um, but the, I think what's worth addressing here is what gets in the way of our obedience? Because everybody that says, Lord, Lord, clearly likes something about God. Otherwise, they wouldn't be calling him Lord, Lord. But there's a disconnect between us calling him Lord and us actually doing what he says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just like take a stab at this, okay? I think it's because we think God is holding out on us. We think that we know better. We think that as we look at his commands from Scripture, surely he can't actually mean that. Because this means too much to me. And we get into this weird position of like, yeah, Jesus, surely you like lived a perfect life and died a gruesome death for me. But you probably don't know what's best for me. Are you kidding me? Get out of here. Get out of here with that. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? God is not holding out on you. So you need to stop telling yourself that lie. God is not holding out on you. His commands are good for you. But let's go back to the parable. Two dudes building the house side by side. The one who's working on his foundation, guess what he's probably doing? He's looking over at his buddy's house, and he sees that thing going up. And he's probably getting pretty frustrated, right? Because everything he's working on is below the surface. It's not seen. Certainly doesn't feel rewarding, but the person next to him, that house is going up so much quicker. I think as we look around at our culture, I was talking with my wife about this um, a couple weeks ago. You look at like a giving statement because we have stepped into this difficult command. You guys hear me. I don't always love giving money to the church. Shooting you straight. That was one of the hardest things for me to step into and obey is to lose control of money and to say, okay, God, I'm going to step in, I'm going to obey, and I'm going to give generously. But when it gets close to the end of the year and you start like compiling tax documents and you look at how much money you've given to the church, it's like, man, what could we have done with that? Right? We see our friends who are not following Jesus going on all these bougie vacations. It's like, man, that'd be nice, huh? 
Um, and do we say, unfortunately, we're just giving to the church? No, we don't do that. But I'm telling you, it is going to cost you something, right? Obedience to Jesus, laying a firm foundation is going to cost you something, but it's for your good. Because your friends right now that are, you know, storing up possessions because they're not giving generously, your friends that are partying on the weekends because, you know, drunkenness, sex, who cares? Let's live it up. Your friends who are just doing everything they can to secure their dream internship so that they can make six figures while you are giving up some of those opportunities to come to a Thursday night salt company, one day a flood is going to come in their life, okay? It's inevitable. In both of these situations, a flood comes. A job layoff comes. An addiction to a substance comes. A failed marriage comes. Infertility comes. And then what's going to save them? Their money? Their alcohol? Their sex? No. They're going to be looking at you. And they're going to say, how are you so steady? I know you've had hardship too. How did you make it through? Which brings us to our third point. Our faith will be shaken. And only a faith that is marked by obedience will last. So what are you building your foundation on? What are you building your life on? There's a guy by the name of C.T. Studd, awesome name. Charles Thomas Studd, born in England, 1860, son of wealthy Edward Studd, who made a fortune in India. And C.T. Studd lived up to his name. He was a stud. He loved the sport of cricket. Uh, It was the most popular sport in England of their time, and he wasn't super athletic, but he committed to becoming the best cricket player of all time, and guess what? He did it. At the age of 19, he goes to Cambridge University, becomes a cricket star, uh, says he soon became the captain of the Cambridge cricket team. He was an idol to students and a legend in his time. He was claimed then and today as the greatest player to have ever played the game. But something happens. Four, year, four years later, he's 23 years old. He's sitting beside his younger brother on his deathbed. His younger brother's on his deathbed. And C.T. Studd says this. Now, what is all the popularity of the world to George? It's his younger brother. What is all the fame and flattering? What is it worth to possess the riches of the world when a man comes to face with eternity? It took C.T. Studd looking at his dying brother to say, all the wealth, all the success, all the fame. When I'm going to die, what's this this all going to matter? What does it mean to George? With a surprising turn, God heals his his brother, and C.T. Studd is gripped by the hand of God. This is the beginning of C.T. Studd's story, who ends up, you guys get this, he was a professional cricket player, he leaves professional athletics and becomes a missionary to China. Became one of the most influential modern day missionaries that we know of, and I love this part of it, it says, 
Despite a promising career in cricket, the life of comfort he had grown up in, C.T. determined to follow God's heart for the world and join Hudson Taylor in reaching China. Studd's decision to go to China influenced seven other men at Cambridge to live for God's glory and devote themselves to China also. So it didn't just stop with him, right? He goes and talks to his buddies and they're like, let's go. Let's all go to China. Let's do this thing. Two years later, they set, set sail for Shanghai. There's a couple other interesting facts. His, his dad, Edward, dies, gives him a huge inheritance. He gives it all away, but about 4000 bucks. And I think this is hilarious. He gets married. His wife's name is Priscilla. Great name. Um, she says, Charlie. That's his actual name. That's why he went by CT also. Um, Charlie, what did the Lord tell the rich young man to do? And he said, sell it all. She said, well then, we will start clear with the Lord at our wedding. <laughs> they gave the rest of their money away to missionaries. This dude gets it, right? Leaves wealth, leaves fame, leaves comfort, because he came face to face with eternity, and he said, what's my foundation built on? He has this famous poem. I'd encourage you guys to look it up. It's called Only One Life. I'm going to read a couple lines. Only one life, the still small voice, Gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave into God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This is a dude who knows it because he gave it all. And maybe God isn't asking you to give away a wealthy inheritance. Maybe he's not asking you to leave professional sports. We don't have any professional sports teams in Cedar Rapids. And if you're competing Division Three or at Kirkwood, your, your odds are not high. I'm just here to tell you. <clears throat> okay. But, but, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Maybe, maybe, God is asking you to forgive that family member you've been holding a grudge against this Christmas break. Maybe, God is asking you to end your ungodly relationship. Maybe God is asking you to stop gossiping, to start being so, stop being so dang judgmental. Maybe God is asking you, like he did me several years ago, to start generously giving away money. To stop hoarding possessions and wealth for yourself. Maybe he's asking you to die to the idolatry of success or comfort. This idea of, oh, I'm going to make big money and always live close to my family forever. And maybe what he's asking you to do is say, hey, if I'm Lord, how about you let me tell you what to do with the rest of your life? How about you, tell, you let me tell you where you're going to work, where you're going to live, what you're going to do. Because this kingdom that God is building, he's actually inviting you to be a part of it. And so the question is not, how do I become Lord of my life for the sake of my comfort and convenience? But how do I let God himself, the true Lord, give me direction for the sake of the mission of the kingdom? Is it scary? Yeah, it's scary. 
You better believe it. But if you actually begin to understand who this Lord is that you call Lord, there's a peace even in the storm. Because the storms are going to hit. C.T. Studd says this. I got one last quote for you. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great to make for him. It's looking back at Romans 8.32 and saying, Jesus, if you would live the perfect life and die the gruesome death, I can trust that wherever you lead me, you're, you're taking me there and you're going to provide for me and it's going to be for my good. Even when it doesn't look like it on the surface, when the storms hit and you've stopped looking for your foundation horizontally in created things, which will fail you. I'm just here to tell you that. Even the best friends, even the best spouse, I know this personally because I have the best spouse, even if you have that, they will fail you. And you will be left asking this question, is my foundation found horizontally or is it found vertically? And you can trust this Jesus Christ, this, this man who came down from heaven fully God, fully man, to pay the penalty that you deserved so that you could experience God today, he's got your best interest in mind. So we can call him Lord. What a gift. <laughs> and we can trust him when we come to him and he tells us to do something, we can say, yes, Lord. Because the words no and Lord do not belong together. Okay, I've heard it said this way. With no and Lord, there's two positions. There's a throne and there's a cross. Okay? And if you're going to say no to Jesus, here's what you're doing. You're putting Jesus on the cross and you're putting yourself on the throne. You are calling yourself Lord. But if you're going to let Jesus be Lord, your no is putting yourself on the cross. It's you saying, I'm going to die to myself because Jesus is on the throne. That's what it looks like to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So our big idea for the night, lasting faith lives for God. Pretty simple. Pretty simple to say. A lot harder to do. <laughs> lasting faith lives for God. You want to have a faith that lasts not just through Christmas break, but till you're 30, till you're 70, when you die and you stand before God, you want a faith that lasts? Three, three pretty simple application points for us to do. Number one, examine who or what has mastery over your life and then turn it over to God. So I ask the question like, who is Lord? Maybe it's you. Maybe it is your desire to graduate with a 4.0. And to score that dream job, maybe what's Lord of your life is your desire to achieve. Maybe what's Lord of your life is your desire to fit in with this broken world and to party. Maybe that's Lord of your life. And so for you to say, I'm going to examine my life and I'm going to acknowledge what has been giving me direction. And I'm going to say this, this makes a terrible foundation. Because anything other than God makes a terrible foundation. Step two, 
Let the overwhelming grace of God propel you forward to obedience. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has already accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection and say, you are a great God. You are a great God that you would save a wretched man like me. You're the worst sinner you know, and Jesus died for you. He knows your deepest, darkest thoughts. He knows your selfish ambitions. He knows all of your selfish motivations that want to do nothing with him and everything to do with your own, your own life and your own plan. And still, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is a great God. That is a great Lord to serve. And from that place, number three, commit to coming to Jesus, hearing his word and doing it. Commit to coming to Jesus, hearing his word and doing it. Obedience. That's what obedience is. Takes God at his word, says yes. We want to help you guys do that. At least for um, this Christmas break, we're going to have uh, a Bible reading plan for you. So we're working through the book of Genesis um, in December. And so here's a really practical for all you type A checklist people, of which I'm one. It's like, Jordan, just tell me what to do. All right. Grab one of the bookmarks, Bible reading plan. Actually commit to coming to God. It'll take you 15 minutes a day. And don't tell me you don't have time or else I want to see your screen time. All of you. Okay? Your four hours a day on your phone can wait 15 minutes. Um, grab a bookmark. Have one person in this room that you're going to say, we're going to read Genesis together. Sound good? Yup. Did we just become best friends? Yup. That's what you're going to do. Okay? And that's what you're actually going to do. Over the next several weeks, you're going to begin coming to Jesus, hearing his word, and actually saying, how is this going to change the way I live? How is this going to change the way I think? How is this going to change the way I act? And the statement you can make then is, God, you make a great foundation. All those things I once put my hope in, they make a terrible foundation. God, you make a great foundation. And you won't just say that this Christmas break. The reality is one day, you're going to grow up. You're not going to be a college student anymore. You're going to be 40. You're going to be 70. You're going to be sitting on a rocking chair on a, on a porch somewhere warm, ho hopefully. <clears throat> and you're going to say, God, you make a great foundation. And one day, you're going to die. And that doesn't have to scare you. Because your, your foundation has been secure all along. And you're going to stand before God, and here's what he's going to say to you. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we live for. Well done, good and faithful servant. And just like I said, Christmas break is a glimpse into our eternity. There's this idea of many of us may end up disappointed in heaven because the primary focus of heaven is Jesus. Okay? And so if we don't treasure Jesus now, there's this idea that why would we ever treasure him in heaven if we're not treasuring him now? So the command is, treasure Jesus. Treasure Jesus today and tomorrow and next week and next month, next year, next 40 years until the day you die. And I look forward to worshiping with all of you guys, not just in the next two minutes, but for the next two million years. It's going to be a party. So let's pray together. Yeah, God, um, pretty easy to see um, in my life, God, in our lives, um, 
where our foundation is shaky. Unfortunately, you know me, you know I'm stubborn, you know I have to learn the hard way most times, and it comes through financial hardship, it comes through uh, difficult family situations. Um, the flood breaks and hits against the house, checks my life, and reveals whether or not I have a firm foundation, and um, man, I'm grateful. I'm grateful, God, that you have kept me to this day um, in spite of my failing, in spite of my faltering, in spite of looking to other places for a foundation. Jesus, you alone have kept me, and you're, you're pleading with me, and you're pleading with all of us in this room, God, that we wouldn't just call you Lord, Lord with our lips, but that we would acknowledge that you are master over our lives and that you are worthy to be praised, you're worthy to live for, you're easy to trust because Jesus, you laid down your life for us. And if you can die for us, surely we can live for you. We know that to be true. So help us over these next several minutes, next several days and weeks to examine our lives, to give it to you, Jesus, to see you as Lord and to set our firm foundation upon what you say, what you've done, Jesus, ultimately who you are. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.